started. I'd like to welcome everyone to the AO Trauma uh, North America Journal Club on subtrochanteric and teric femur fractures for this month. Um, I'm going to try to get through these intro slides fairly quick so we can get, there's a lot of content in this uh, webinar, uh, but I'd like to welcome everyone. Here are moderators. I'd like to thank everyone for their help in getting this put together. And here are our authors. We've got a quite a, quite a lineup today, um, so that's why we want to kind of get to the meet of the journal club. But I'd like to thank everyone for participating and taking their time out of their night to uh, supply their expertise in subtrochanteric femur fractures. So this is where we're going to get started. All right. So my name is Kyle Schweizer from the University of Missouri, and I'm fortunate to be joined by Dr. Asari from St. John's in Detroit. And we're going to be talking about clamp-assisted reduction of high subtrochanteric fractures of the femur. Um, so we appreciate you being here with us. And why don't you give us just a quick summary of, um, of the article and its findings. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Very much appreciate it. So, um, yeah, this was a retrospective study that looked at about 50 mid uh, low 50s number of patients who all had the same um, technique for management of their high subtroke fracture where the deforming forces were the typical for a subtroke and um, basically uh, the strategy was to realign the proximal segment to assist with proper nailing so that you have an optimal starting point and um, a few of the fractures had uh, an addition of a cerclage and we had a high union rate and um, the cerclage um, in this uh, study turned out not to be the quote unquote instrument of the devil and uh, did not um, uh, negatively impact union rates. So um, it was a pretty short study, uh, pretty concise paper that uh, looked at this uh, subgroup of fractures and we had um, good um, union rates and clinical outcomes. So I guess, why did you guys, um, why did you guys decide to start using surplage? Because I'm sure around this time when you were going to publish this paper, it was considered a little bit of heresy to kind of open these up and quote, strip the tissue away from the fracture and stuff. Yeah, well, I, this, this was a fellowship project. So um, early in the fellowship year, uh, the, the trauma fellows and the trauma attendings got together to um, for a research meeting and uh, a bunch of ideas were um, brought up um, and uh, Dr. Heidekevich, who was one of my attendings uh, at the time in Tampa, um, who's now in Orlando, he, uh, he had written a paper in 2001 looking at reverse oblique um, IT fractures and part of it was just sort of from his standpoint an extension of of that he thought that was a good article that um, for a pretty common fracture and um, having another uh, paper about proximal femur fractures with a different viewpoint made sense. This was a point of contention though, you, this clamp assist and or um, uh, use of a cerclage, there were some of the attendings who said, you know, that's, that's a tourniquet and uh, you don't want to be publishing this or you don't want to be looking at this because you're going to cause problems. But there was a, a group of uh, attendings who were um, pretty dedicated to this mindset for the past few years. And so it wasn't my idea. It was their idea and something I had never really thought of as a resident. So um, uh, they were convinced that the reduction made more, uh, more of a positive impact on healing. And in reality, from a plate standpoint, if you go back even further to the late 80s, um, another sort of Tampa alum, um, Brett Ballhoffner had, and Jeff Mast had published on plating subtrochs, and they had a high union rate as well. So opening the fracture itself doesn't seem to be the issue, but having a good reduction and stable fixation uh, made more sense um, to positively impact union. Um. You kind of touched on some of the highlights and takeaway points in, a, in your summary, but what is a what do you think there is? What's an aspect of this article that you think people miss when they read it? Whether that's a weakness of it or a strength, like 
So sometimes we have subtleties in these articles and we write them that maybe there's a point that's not that's maybe looked over a little bit. Well, I'd like to think it's there's not too much to hide there. It is, like I said, it's a pretty short manuscript. Um, uh, I think uh, implied here is we all have a mindset of what any fracture we're managing, what the what it's going to behave like. Um, but when the rubber meets the road, um, I find when you're in the OR, you're going to have like your technical skills, your toolbox, and you need to see how the fracture behaves. So first off is this is really applicable to fractures that are um, deforming uh, in this typical way for a subtroke, but I think it applies to even a distal fracture that you're retrograde nailing or even a, a proximal tibia fracture that you need to see how the fracture is behaving and um, your reduction and fixation strategies need to be very much based on the behavior. So that, that was one of the things that we excluded the fractures that they may have been subtrochish, but they're really behaving like shafts. You don't really need to open those. Um, so deal with the problem at hand, identify and deal with the problem at hand. So you have to see how it behaves when you're in the OR. And then the next thing is um, uh, you don't need to flip the vastus and do um, uh, an exposure like that. It's really like splitting the fibers of the muscle right over where the fracture is and sliding the clamp in without completely stripping the bone. Um, I would say uh, use of CTs and now everybody seems to get pan scanned now. And at some point in time, I wondered, you know, why are we getting all these CTs? But they're so useful to help planning your clamp position because especially for the oblique fractures, you can see where the apex of the fracture is. And you might have a, uh, an incision out of plane um, from the lateral part of the thigh. You might go a little anterolateral and you can get a clamp in position that's away from the jig um, that makes the whole um, nailing more like a sawbones. So this, uh, those are aspects, the idea is minimize the stripping and, um, and I think nowadays using the CT to help with uh, clamp uh, placement and incision, sele incision selection for that part of it is very helpful because what, what's not, the other bit that's not written in the article is so frequently the ideal position of the clamp is right in the way of the jig and it can be pretty frustrating to work around that. Um, so when you can get it out of position of the jig, that helps. Um, <clears throat> what do you think is the kind of the biggest weakness of this paper besides being, you know, the, the typical retrospective stuff? But I think there's any other weaknesses that we could point out or discuss with the, with the viewers here. Um, probably also more implied is that really your the starting point of the um, for your nail is still super critical. So uh, because of the, you know, having a fracture near the driving end of the nail is, uh, I think, makes that um, so much more important. So perhaps that's not well explained in the article. And it is a small group of patients and there's no, you know, there's no control group. So I wonder if we were to submit the same paper today, whether it would be accepted at JBJS. I, I'm going to guess no. There's no proms. There's, there, you know, the typical things that um, um, the top level uh, journals want. Uh, this paper doesn't have, but you know, it's it's an easy read and it kind of makes sense for most fracture surgeons. I think. So, do you think, uh, do you, or do you remember the the ones that went on to um, to have the slight varus malunion. Do, do you remember if those were, was that like a post-operative loss? Was that related to the start site? Were they more likely to have the cables? I mean, I know it's a long time ago, or maybe you didn't look at that, but do you remember, like, was there anything about those that went into varus that you can remember if there was a certain characteristic associated with it? Um, it's kind of a long time ago. <laughs> so I know. I, my best recollection is that, and if I were to apply it to what I'm looking at now with the, you know, you know, current patients is, I feel like you can, if you slide the 
clamp in, you've got it <clears throat> nicely reduced, and um, you uh, nail the fracture, you loosen the clamp, and things look like they're well aligned, and probably there's a subset of those that still drift into a little bit of varus. Um, and, you know, the measurement of varus in the study was kind of twofold, trying to note whether there was, you know, um, a measurable deformity at the fracture itself, but also whether um, the relative heights of the greater trochanters to the center of the femoral heads. So, um, you know, a lot of these fractures, especially in older people, the average age was like 55, so there's a, there's a lot of older patients. Sometimes they have splits into the IT region or the whole, um, um, the whole um, lateral part of the fracture just sort of turns into a, it, it sort of abducts, I guess. And um, sometimes you wish you had a clamp after the fact, or you had a cable after the fact. Or nowadays, I'm, I think I'm more inclined to use a mini frag plate, even like a, like a 2.7 recon plate seems to be enough to just to help aid these to stay in position. And um, I think it, it assists in the load sharing of the, of the nail if you've got a better reduction um, and uh, you're relying on bone-to-bone -bone contact for stability. Okay, well, um, we appreciate you again being here and being willing to discuss your paper and your practice and um, and say thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. So uh, I'm Andrew Mills, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Ostrom from uh, UNC, and we're going to be discussing a critical analysis of the eccentric starting point for trochanteric intramedullary femoral nailing, which is from uh, 2005 in uh, JOT. So thanks for thanks for agreeing to do this. It's great. Oh, happy to be here. So I guess uh, my first question is, reading the article, there's this line right at the beginning that's, you know, the authors have noted clinically that some subtroke fractures reduce on a fracture table and then malreduce when you put the nail in. I, I know it's a while ago, but do you, is there like a specific case or something that you remember being particularly like, uh, I don't know, frustrated or something when it happened? Or is it just something that, you know, you started noticing and kind of wanted to dig into or? <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, I grew up and, and trained and started practicing through the 90s and early 2000s with, with uh, just piriformis nails. So you got a reduction. And, I you know, as we said in the article, you go central medulla, you go right down the canal, and it doesn't malreduce because whatever reduction you had, you kept. And then we went to these offset nails, and I guess the best analogy is doing a like a proximal tibia, and we can't go straight down the middle, so we have an eccentric starting point, um, and we get deformities. And what happened was um, I started using trochanteric nails, and everybody said, oh, they're so much easier, and with fat people and muscular people, and we did it, and we thought we knew what we were doing, but like you'd put it in one time, especially in the proximal subjokes and it would look great and you put it another time and it would be inverse and then it was very variable and the question was is it is it the nail is it where we're starting it is it the fracture type is it, what is it that's that's so variable because we can't we couldn't reproduce the same thing every single time and we really wanted to believe that this was better than what we were doing but in the beginning i actually i couldn't i couldn't prove it it was it was trial and error and like everything in orthopedic trauma you try it for a while you screw it up and then you go try and figure out why you screwed it up so that's what we did yeah yeah well yeah i really like the design of the study um you know i guess coming back to what you just said you know after you did the study were the results surprising to you at the time or did you kind of think did you go into it thinking that this was about what you were going to find you know, it's interesting, like the, the companies all had, a, you, you can tell from the article, had a different proximal bend. And it was sort of, you know, when we use these plating systems that are all made on, based on cadavers and stuff, and they say, oh, you know, one size fits most. And I couldn't figure out, like, why, why were these all different, you know, bends proximally and stuff? And 
So they, you know, draw a line down the middle of the canal, then they draw a line from the choke canner and intersected that. And they said, that's, that's the proximal bend. And I mean, I, I got all that, but you know, there's a four degree, there's a five degree, there's a six degree, there's a 10 degree. So something had to give. And, and you know, as well as I do, like some people, I mean, trochanteric anatomy is really weird. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, you know, people have um, short femoral necks, long femoral necks. Some people have a valgus, a lot of air. I mean, there's all kinds of variables and, I think that we just had a difficult time. Um, so, I, yeah, I think the idea was like, if we could figure out one spot, you know, sort of what we did later on with the retrograde, you know, one spot that would universally reduce it, no matter what nail you use, that would be great. I didn't think we could do that, but I thought with the four to six degree nails, we probably could. And we got, I think we got pretty close, but it, it, it was eye-opening to me that we just sort of, you know, we're doing what we thought was right. All the, all the companies had a, had a different place to start, which was a little frustrating as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I, I told the residents over the years, and I still believe is I think one of the ways we get in trouble is even if we put the guide pin in the all where we wanted to start, let's say the tip of the trochanter, mm -hmm. and we bring that long guide rod out and you have an obese or muscular patient, the guide rod deflects laterally. And so when we keep reaming, yeah. We're actually reaming eccentrically. And it, it happened to me in the beginning, like three or four times. I'm like, that wasn't when I put the nail on, I said, that wasn't where I started it. Like I started it more medial than that. It took me a while to figure that out too. So yeah, I mean, I was hoping we could find one universal. It's not, I think it's not quite as easy with retrograde nailing. Cause again, that's a right down, that's a central mudra right down the canal. But yeah, I mean, I was happy that we could at least understand what we were doing right and doing wrong yeah yeah and one of the other things i liked about the study and i wanted to ask you a question about it is you, you at the end you kind of talk a little bit about the anterior to posterior placement of the start point because the whole design of the study is basically based off of like the ap x-ray was that something that you noticed like as it was going on that it was a maybe a another effect or another uh another aspect of it or you know, did you did you like intentionally leave that out of the study to make it as like simple and pure as possible? You know, my feeling is, and, the, and again, I've taught the residents over the years that, you know, you can't really adjust for varus if you have it, but you can adjust for either apex anterior, apex posterior with your hip motion. And, you know, we've all done nailings where the proximal fragments flexed and we accept whatever five, 10 degrees of apex anterior, and patients do wonderful. They just, they don't do wonderful if you leave them in 10 degrees of varus and, you know, nails break and people limp like crazy. Um, so part of that was we looked at the curvature of the nail and that was another mm -hmm. study we'd written looking at, um, especially in subtropes where the femur can't move around um, the nail, that um, synthes was way ahead of its time. They had a 150 um, radius of curvature, which was actually really bowed, which was a good nail. Whereas when you looked at the gamma, it was, you know, initially it was like 300 um, and the tan was like 350. And so they were really, really straight nails. And I think that's part of what the deformity were. I don't, I, I, I want to believe that where we start, it's important, but I also think the curvature of the nail made a difference and caused the deformities as well. Um, so I just, I just sort of, I sort of still believe that if you started in like the anterior one-third, it just makes it easier to put that cephalomedrally screw up into the femoral head without rotating the nail an awful lot. And I still, to this day, I still accept five, 10 degrees, you know, in the lateral view. I, I just don't, I don't think that's uh, clinically a problem, but I do think in the, you know, when you're looking at it in the coronal plane, I really think they got to be as close to, to neutral or even touch of valgus would be, would be great. Yeah. Touch of valgus. Okay. All right. <clears throat> the other things I liked about the paper was, you know, you did it in intact femurs, which, you know, kind of like controls for you had a good reduction and all those things. Um, but you didn't you didn't put the screws into the head. Right. So there's a little bit. I don't know. Futz factor is the right word, but the depth of the nail sometimes affects it, too, because it's where that, you know, the, the valgus curvature ends up being depending on where you put your screws into the head i mean i like that you talked about it but i you know i think the study was really um i guess really pure for looking at it you know if 
from my understanding, the tip of the nail stopped right at the tip of the trochlear every time. Yeah. So it's trying to be as reproducible as possible. Is that that kind yeah. of? You know, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's so many variables and you just got to sort of figure out which, you know, pick and choose your poison, which ones you're going to do and not do. And, you know, I could have backed the nails up or put the nails down and then it was dependent on the femur we were using. And um, and I agree. And you're right. We did say in the article that how deep you put it will make a difference. Um, but um, just for purity. And I agree with you. I, I could not, I couldn't reproduce the pull of the, you know, the hip flexors or the abductor. Yeah. So, I said, look, what would happen if I had a perfect reduction and I reamed it perfect and then just saw what the nail did? And that's why we did it. And the reverse obliquity was just, as we said, what's the worst case scenario? Like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And that's the one we all struggle with. So that was yeah. the reason for picking that one. Yeah, I guess. So, you know, this paper was in 2005. So what is your, like, if you have a subtroke, like a reverse obliquity subtroke today, like, you know, you don't have to go into like what exactly what nail you would use, but like, what's your, what's your setup? Like where, you know, are you doing anything different than you did in this paper? Like what, you know, just kind of take me through how you do it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be a contrarian, but I do all my proximal subtrokes lateral. Uh, I, I had, I just, I fight with the, the post. I fight with the more traction I put on off and get more varus or I can get more flexion of the proximal fragment. If I put them in, I put them lateral, uh, then I actually get valgus of the proximal fragment. Um, I mean, the rotation's on me and over time I've learned how to uh, do the rotation. You can, you know, you can get an AP of the, with like a little bit of lesser trochanter showing with a lateral fluoroscopy and then internal rotate about 10 degrees to get an AP of the knee with the patella center and that gets you close. Other people, um, so you can do it off a lateral to get a perfect lateral to knee with the condyle superimposed and then same thing up top. Um, so rotations on you, but, um, if you do them lateral, they're much easier. I usually start for the, for the higher ones. I usually start just medial to the tip of the trope. And then I figure I'm going to ream to the tip of the trope. Um, and then, like I said, rotation and, you know, I've, I've always said to the residents, like, it would be awesome if there was a nail that could correct like length, rotation, angulation, or we don't have that. Right. So, <laughs> so it's, it's on us. Right. So yeah. um, I'm willing to put them lateral so I can take care of the valgus. I can take care of the reduction. Um, I'm, I'm then in charge of the shortening and I'm in charge of the rotation, but um, yeah, that that's how I do them now. I got you. But curious, yeah. have you ever, have you or like whoever's in the journal club tried doing them lateral? Is that something anybody's ever tried? So I, if I'm going to open it, I do it lateral and, uh, or in a big person, I, I do it lateral. Um, I like it. I, I like it a lot for a lot of the reasons that you just said. The other thing is starting points much easier lateral than it is, you know, supine, you, you really, really struggle. And I feel like lateral, I can, I can almost say I'm a touch anterior and I can move it like supine. It's, it's so hard trying to be, um, trying to be in that plane. I just, I find it, I find it easier, but I mean, the other thing is like, if you really can't get it, then, you know, make, make a small percutaneous incision. I'll use the, um, you know, like a, a percutaneous vapor or just, a you know, some kind of small clamp without much muscle stripping. Um, but again, that really depends on the nail and where you started, because if you didn't do it right with the nail and the insertion point and everything else, as soon as you take the clamp off it, it pops apart. So it, yeah. it does help you with the reaming. So you're not reaming eccentrically. I, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, those were, you know, kind of the main points that I wanted to hit from the article. So um, besides the, besides not putting cephalomedullary screws in it or anything else you didn't like? Uh no, actually, I thought this is like I was reading this article and I was like, you know, the, you know, I work with residents. So I was like, they ask me questions and I just want to like hand them this article and be like, take this article. And this is like why we do like most of the things that we do. No, I'll, be, I'll be honest, the problem when you're an old guy, but the problem with, you know, doing the choke nails when they first came out and then retrograde nails when they first came out was there was no playbook. Like you, you these things yeah. came out and, um, you sort of had to screw up and you sort of had to figure out what was going on and everything else. But um, I think it gets, you know, it's easier when someone else has screwed up before you, then your, your idea is 
okay, I'm not going to do this, but I'll find another way to screw up. So, so at least if people can take some of the guesswork out, it makes it easier. And the problem when this started out, there was no way to figure out how to do these things. So, uh, yeah. figured it out. but, um, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks a lot. This was great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. John Real, um, who's currently the uh, program director of the uh, Medical City University of North Texas and Texas Christian University Orthopedic Residency Program. Um, we really appreciate you, Dr. Real, for taking some time today to talk to me about your uh, landmark article of intramedullary nailing of subtrochanteric fractures. Does malreduction matter? Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks. It's my pleasure. So, Dr. Real, what was the motivation for you and your colleagues behind uh, looking at this study and kind of historically, uh, what were kind of the things that led to the synthesis of this uh, study and article? Sure. So the uh, main motivation behind uh, putting this study together and going back and looking at our subtroke fractures was uh, kind of noticing uh, a um, trend in uh, the delayed unions that we had in subtrochanteric fractures in having malreduction. And uh, I think historically, varus malreduction had been paid close attention to um, in subtroch fractures and even specifically as nailing became more popular and uh, making sure that you avoided that, that varus malreduction. But the sagittal plane malreduction uh, was a little bit uh, less of a focus, and uh, we felt that it was likely just as important as that varus malreduction. Uh, and in addition to that, the uh, what qualified as a malreduction and kind of quantifying that um, angulation and in malreduction was never really done uh, previously. And so we wanted to try and take a look back at uh, our subtrochanteric fractures and see what degree of malreduction ended up leading to um, delayed union or non-union. Absolutely. And and from that uh, standpoint, when, when you did look back, did it surprise you um, uh, the amount of malreduction that it took? Or uh, was that something that was pretty anticipated by your team leading up to that? Or uh, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, we we did in large part anticipate a, a ten degree malreduction to be significant. We we even thought maybe a five degree would be significant, and, and uh, it didn't seem to be. And so um, I, I I think it was in line with uh, with what we thought um, for the most part. Yes, I gotcha. And looking at your results, uh, especially uh, what was interesting to me is that sometimes the amount of uh, varus malreduction and apex anterior, the flexion deformity, didn't always necessarily line up uh, equally. Um, so it looked like in some instances when you had larger amount of sagittal deformity, it led to the same issue. Um, I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, is that something that you all anticipated too, or did you think that uh, one would be more important than the other from that standpoint? Yeah, not not necessarily that, uh, I mean, again, just going back historically, I think that uh, varus malreduction was stressed a lot more. And so, you know, maybe had some uh, pre-existing bias just based on the, the history of the way these fractures were talked about that varus malreduction might be more important uh, than sagittal plane. But um, yeah, we had, some that were really well aligned um, on the coronal plane uh, on the AP view that uh, that had that 10 degree or you know maybe even 15 degree malreduction in the sagittal plane that uh, had you know just as much of a of a problem healing. Absolutely. What were some of the biggest takeaways from this study for you, and how did they impact and influence your practice? For me, really, the biggest takeaway of the study is that. Um, malreduction matters in all planes. And so um, sounds like a simple thing, but uh, so easy to forget, even when you know it to be true. Um, and uh, um, uh, so making sure that you're well reduced on both the AP view and on the lateral view uh, in the subtrochanteric fractures. And um, I mean, I think uh, nailing just in general, uh, we, we think of it as, uh, you know, secondary bone healing. So as long as we have things 
um, kind of somewhat in line, they're going to heal. Uh, but uh, in certain fracture patterns, uh, even even though that overall mechanical access may be maybe better uh, of the femur, just not having that fracture site lined up uh, well enough at an area that um, traditionally has difficulty healing um, uh, really makes a difference. And so uh, I think the main takeaway point is uh, making sure that you're reduced in both planes. Um, and you know, as a as a next step to that, I think the the next thing that uh, at least in my mind immediately pops into question is, well, how, how do you do that? How do you get it uh, well reduced in both planes? And so um, the things I think about in these cases, a couple of things are uh, number one, starting point I think is the most important thing. And I think uh, similar to a proximal tibia fracture, I think these proximal femur fractures that you nail, that's really 90% of the case. And if you get that starting point right, um, you're going to be a lot better off. And so, you know, a lot of people have talked about um, getting that starting point medial or avoiding a lateral starting point in your coronal plane. And I think that's very important. And the, the articles that have uh, kind of gone through that, I think, have been uh, landmark and, and important for subtrope fractures. But I also think that where you get that starting point in the sagittal plane is important too. And so uh, just making sure that um, you're where you want to be there and that uh, um, uh, you avoid that, that uh, uh, anterior starting point that's going to um, cause you that malreduction in the sagittal plane. Definitely. Yeah, it, um, it, it's interesting to think about how, how far we've come, even in the past two decades for these injuries. I think our thinking has certainly shifted shifted quite a bit. Um, and I think we're doing a better job of fixing these, but um, studies like yours really kind of led the way in thinking about these more um, in a complete fashion. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time today to, to talk with us. And I, I look forward to hearing further discussion in the uh, live meeting too. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Those are great interviews. I think we're going to toss it over to Dr. Sweezer and Dr. Christ for a tips and tricks discussion. Wait a second. Oh, we're gonna go first. <laughs> we're gonna jump jump the line. We got a special guest. He gets, I think, the award for Travis farthest traveled for this webinar. Uh, Dr. Andrew Oppie is joining us from Melbourne, Australia, from Orthosport Victoria, talking about his article on subtrochanteric fractures and the effect of cerclage wire, kind of already been alluded to a couple of times in the previous videos. We did record a video for this while we were in Davos, but the video had some technical difficulties. So we figured we'd pull him into the queue and go through his article quickly and include him in the panel that I'm also excited to see how it pans out. So in brief, Dr. Oppie, can you kind of set the stage for what was going on in the time in your in your group's practice that that the cerclage was something that was coming into into play and then kind of summarize the main findings from this from this study? Yeah, sure, Adam, and uh, thanks very much for inviting me to be involved. It's a fantastic uh, you know, journal club you, you put on over there. I wish we could replicate this uh, back here in, in Australia. Um, so it's a shame our videos uh, have gone missing, uh, or maybe it's been filmed upside down with me down under or something's gone wrong. But uh, yeah, look, there's a paper we published back um, now, and uh, you know, it was a period of from 2007 to 2014. And it's again the beauty of AO, really. It was when I was teaching on a course in Asia, when I saw the um, what was new to us at the time, anyway, the minimally invasive cable passer. Um, and really felt that it sort of uh, did revolutionise the, the application of, of sort of cables in these sort of fractures. Um, and, you know, we've always been quite aware of that, that sort of the relative risk and, and, you know, theory on, you know, the soft tissue stripping, reducing a fracture in an open fashion with hay groves, um, and then wrapping the sort of cerclage wire and trying to get the big passer around and, um, and, and passing that cable. So, so that led us to, to really, we'd been doing this for about seven years using the percutaneous MEPO set. And we thought we'd review our findings because we, we did feel that they were sort of better. And it was quite interesting that over that seven year period, 
we were able to sort of, sort of identify appropriate 135 um, sort of cases, subtroke uh, fractures uh, fixed with a nail. Um, and uh, basically about 50%, interestingly enough, were treated with some form of, form of open reduction and the other 50% treated with a closed reduction. Um, and, and of the open reduction, so we had about 15% that had the associated surclage wire. results in the primary outcome really about finding an unplanned return to theatre for revision surgery. That you know the majority basically went on um, that needed revision surgery about 15% needed revision surgery um, uh, from the open fractures and uh, and these were the ones that did not have wires and so they went on re reviewing all these cases from a radiological point of view it was found that in fact, by trying to achieve the best anatomical reduction of these fractures has been previously discussed. I've been listening in on all those great talks um, and really stopping this, these fractures falling into varus and getting as much bone stock available, um, uh, we had the best outcome. So there weren't issues in terms of avascular bone or non-union um, due to the wiring technique. So the new sort of MEPO wiring technique was obviously working well in terms of the soft tissue um, sort of minimising their footprint there uh, and giving us the best uh, sort of reduction and then relying on those kefamidullary nails then to, to do their job um, and allowing these fractures to heal. And uh, so that's really um, a quick summary of our paper and, and, and why we did it. And it's something that we're continuing to do. Um, most of us here in the discussion previously in our institution do do these on a traction table. Um, occasionally it will be done free lateral again for the reasons discussed on larger patients um, or one of our surgeons uh, preference, but otherwise the majority are done supine. Small lateral incision often sometimes look the same place where you think you're going to be placing your kefamidullary screw as well, um, and you can do that reduction. But again, the big key, and I think it's the key to all these sort of subtrochanteric fracture talks, is that the fracture's got to be reduced before you put the nail in it, and using the circlized wire is, is an assistance in allowing us to reduce those fractures before nailing it. Thank you. Well said. Joe, we'll, we'll now turn over to Dr. Swager and the kind of the tips and tricks slash question and answer portion, and then the open panel discussion. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah. <clears throat> thanks, uh, thanks, Brett, for being here with us. Um, I think uh, one valuable question to people watching is, um, what is, what are common mistakes that you see people make when treating these fractures, especially when they're first kind of out operating on their own, or maybe when they have left fellowship and they're used to having a lot of hands and they get out by themselves, like what are some common things you see people do and how can they maybe avoid those? I think the nice thing is that some of the panelists and in interviews have already <clears throat> kind of said some great tricks to have. And so I think Usually people don't get good reductions for, sometimes it's because the patient's too big. Like if you have a 600 pound patient, you can't x-ray them like that. You should get a little bit of a break for that, that reason. But <clears throat> I think, um, you know, not looking into alternative ways of doing it. So like uh, Bob had mentioned, like, do you do, do the panelists do lateral? I only do subtrochs lateral now because of the pain that I had in doing them supine. And so I think if you've never done it supine on a radiolucent flat top with a beanbag or however you position the patient, um, not directly lateral, but rolled back a little bit. Um, I think if you haven't done it, it'll be an eye-opening experience um, for the reasons that Bob had mentioned. Reduction's easier. Uh, nail <clears throat> position start point is easier. Kind of everything's easier, whether it's a large patient or a small patient. I think the... Other thing, um, like the, I used to say circlage wires were tools of the devil when I first got out of fellowship uh, 18 years ago. And uh, with the uh, advent of the uh, minimally invasive percutaneous wire passing set and other sets, <clears throat> or doing it just really biologically in a friendly fashion instead of just like, you know, scorched earth, uh, you know, passer around the femur uh, and then putting 20 circlage cables like. That, that's not the way to do it. Just like any other part of uh, fracture care, if you do it in a biologically friendly way and do it with nice dissection 
uh, and do it carefully. I think you can use surclage cables like with the standard sets, but I think the minimally invasive passing set has also uh, just changed kind of how I practice and using uh, clamp reductions. I think that the concern that people may have if they haven't trained with those techniques is that they're like, well, I can't open it. I get frustrated. I can't get my reduction. So I'm panicking and I'm getting the nail down just to avoid having the patient in the OR for six hours or, you know, having something bad happen. And so I would um, say, however long it takes you, as long as the patient's doing well, reduction is the most important thing. And especially I think in these geriatric patients that have lower energy fractures, but large spirals, you need to get them reduced or they will displace late. And I think having uh, cerclage wires or, um, you know, if, if you can get them to stay with a clamp reduction, I think I've had the same experience Bob had, like you take the clamp off and then it changes position, especially if the nail's not um, filling the whole canal, which is, is uncommon, especially in older people. Um, I think also um, for me, I've gone to only, and I, I hate always saying like never, only, always, but for subtrochs, I only do them lateral unless they can't go lateral. And I only do piriformis entry nails for the reasons that Bob mentioned. You're down the pipe. It doesn't displace the fracture. There's ways to manage the potential change in reduction with the troch entry nail, but um, I just choose to, to always do a piriformis entry nail. And um, there is a concern in older patients as far as the Z effect, but that with the screws, as far as one going out and one going in, but that was in intertroche fractures. And I haven't seen that really happen with subtroche fractures. Um, I like Bob's tip about rotation. I think I, I'm perseverating over that lately and do the true lateral technique uh, where you get a true lateral of the knee and a like he said, overlap the condyles and an axial lateral of the hip. Um, I think you can use the, the nail aniversion technique for the screws for troke entry nails, but for piriformis entry, the, the entry side into the neck is always posterior to the axis where troke entry is more in line with the shaft. So I don't think that technique is as helpful for a piriformis entry. And... Mm. I don't know. Do you want me to keep talking? I can still. <laughs> I mean, I can. <laughs> um, we can get some other other folks's uh, questions or comments yeah. uh, after what I said. Basically, I've got a question. Sure. Close, close reduction with slight mal reduction or open reduction with a percutane or a perfect reduction. What would you rather have, or what would you rather do? So it depends on the type of fracture. So spiral fracture in a 70 year old, it's getting a perfect reduction, the best that I can get um, because they don't, uh, they take a long time to heal. It's not like a 25 year old subtroke. It's usually different injury. So if it's a comminuted subtroke in a young person, um, then it means uh, you, you, it's comminuted. So you're not gonna like put mini plates on. Typically you're gonna try to, to avoid uh, damaging the fracture more, but I would still make sure the alignment is right, whether that's with, you know, application of joysticks, like you can, that's would be a percutaneous method um, where you can place chance pins. There's always room um, in the proximal femur behind the trochanter. Um, and then, and then you can put it in the shaft unicortically. Um, but I think if, if it's an older person and it, or it's a simple fracture, I'm trying to go for primarily anatomical reduction. If it's a comminuted fracture, um, then it's more of the idea of making sure the top and bottom are appropriate. So length alignment rotation overall. How about the other panelists? <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, great, uh, great, um, all really good points from Brett uh, as normal, but, and I think there's even in the chat, there's something about, you know, sort of anatomical reduction and soft tissue sort of open reduction, what do you do for soft tissue damage? But I think really it's about basically these patients often are being kind of cut and then stripped in terms of their, their muscle attachments. And I think that's what we're trying to avoid. Even if you've got to do a respect to the muscle attachments, the soft tissue attachments, these fragments. So um, I'm normally aiming for essentially as close as I can get to anatomical reduction, but also really before I'm just opening it, I'm, I'm going through all my percutaneous techniques of putting in little levers, shant pins, bone hooks to pull, push and around 
with really small incisions to start with. And just normally you can, you can actually fiddle these things back into a very close position and then a cable if it's appropriate to help get that sort of reduction before you're putting the nail in it. It's interesting hearing Brett talk about the entry points and, you know, we always worry about Varus, um, obviously. And so I, I personally always am using a kefomedullary nail for these, but I actually am aiming for nearly a piriformis fossa entry point and using the nail to absolutely try and help me, help me achieve as much valgus as I can. Um, and aiming out laterally anyway. So I, you can sort of never get sort of medial enough. Um, so that'd, that'd be my little tips based on the discussions we've had, but you know, it's fantastic uh, discussions in this group. Um, yeah, I, heard, I heard Brett use my name a lot, but unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately was in agreement. I think that's just because we have more gray hair than everybody else. I mean, I, I think that, you know, you make your mistakes and you learn from them. I've always said I don't make the same mistake twice, but I make lots of new mistakes. But um, I'll be honest with the panel, and I'm not, I don't want to offend anybody. I, I can count on one hand in 35 years of times I've used circleized wires. I mean, I, I think there's better techniques. And if you do them lateral and you take the distal femur and flex it up, you can actually reduce the flexion without having, like when you do them supine, like I said, when you keep pulling more and more traction, you get more and more deformity. Um, so I, I don't, I'll put in a percutaneous clamp once in a while, but then because I make, a, I pay a lot of attention to the starting point and stuff, once I take it off, it rarely pops off. But uh, again, maybe that's because I, I've made more than my share of mistakes and I've learned, but I think, uh, I think lateral starting point, nail, understand your nail. Um, I agree with Brett. I mean, if you can do a, piriformis now and you know it's a difficult fracture go for it because it won't it won't go anywhere it'll stay right where you put it and i think if you want to use circlage wires and clamps that's fine but you're limited to certain fracture patterns they got to be like a spiral or long you're mm -hmm. not going to be able to do it with a transverse very well you can you you can't circlage i don't think you can unless you guys are, are really great technicians but a transverse fracture but um so again you're limited so um i think what everybody talked about today is actually true you just have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, and then go through them quickly. You don't want to be one of these people where they come in and ask you what time you'll be done your morning case at two o'clock in the afternoon, right? You just want to um, move along and get a good reduction. I see some smiles. So people have been there. So. Anybody else? I think if you're going to start nailing these things lateral, you should start with shaft fractures so that you know what things look like because it's a very different experience and be facile with it when you're not really trying to reduce the distal fragment to the proximal piece so started with simple shafts i mean for me uh really any adolescent femoral shaft fracture i go lateral i uh, i don't like putting them on a fracture table for whatever reason but you need to be comfortable doing it with something simple then graduate to a subtroch where it's uh, more difficult um, because sometimes the Proximal piece is such a weird position that it's very difficult to find an appropriate starting point on the lateral. So one of the a couple of people in the chat have asked about like getting good X-rays and and the um, people are res responding with typing, but I think that's a good kind of question because we brought it up quite a bit. And so, do you, Alan, do you mind you know mentioning like how do you what do you do position wise and and what you you how do you get your lateral appropriately? So I, I do straight up lateral, not like a sloppy position. I prefer blanket rolls to um, a, a pegboard or a, a beanbag because I think you can fluoro through it a little bit easier. Um, and then uh, the, the, the limb that's uh, down, I usually extend the hip so that when you're flexing the, the, hip, the injured hip, you're getting it out of plane from um, the other femur. And then... Um, when I'm making my decisions on the start point, you know, it's a cross table AP and then the lateral, you'll have to find the appropriate amount of uh, orbit or rainbow over the top, but I'll also tilt the unit. So it really does mimic what you would have for the lateral on the, uh, on the fracture table. So it's sort of a cross table as opposed to straight up and down. And then um, I'm usually, uh, if it's a troke starting nail that I'm doing, I do that sort of trochoformis uh, uh, spot on the AP. But on the lateral, I'm kind of looking to see where the head and neck um, 
meet the shaft. And I think on young people, it's almost like, not always, but sometimes it's literally translated. So you can't be anterior enough for the neck and still be in the shaft sort of. So on some of them, you have to cheat and kind of figure it out. So, um, but it's really tilting and uh, finding the correct orbit of the fluoro to, to get that starting point where you can see. Would everyone agree that getting, making sure that you can see before you prep and drape is key? Yes. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. And the other point though, I'd before but is that um when you're doing these lateral definitely has its massive advantages but um I, I found that they're the biggest uh risk of doing them lateral is actually a malrotation um and it's really important to use those tips of getting the rotation right the beauty of doing it supine traction is you normally know the knees are pointing to the roof it's going to be pretty close but when you're doing it lateral you can obviously move the leg in any position when doing your distal cross bolt so and often that's after you've done a really hard reduction and operation and you sort of think the operation's all done it's got to whack some screws across distally and we're done um, and it's always the part i find that you know is often going back to needing revision afterwards is often the rotation so just be very wary and using all those tips and tricks that have been discussed about getting the rotation yeah, I think like Brett said, I think you just have to get good fluoroscopy. You know, you're on the AP lateral match them. It's not, it's, it's, you know, what you said is true. Everyone says to me, they don't want to do model because I'm worried about rotation, but just, you know, do them and use fluoro. And I, I tend to overream them so that once the top is locked, I can still rotate the femur uh, on the nail. So I don't want a really tight fit and I want to be able to rotate it just to get it right. But, um, same thing with length. I mean, I think if you use a fracture table, you could over lengthen people. I think with this one, you just have to sort of decide. Sometimes use a radiopaque ruler to figure out your length when they're really badly commuted. But I don't, uh, honestly, I mean, a lot of the people here do very difficult surgery and, you know, um, you know, SI screws and pedicle screws and everything else. Figuring out rotation is something you can, you can learn. It's not that hard. I think your point about overreaming, or at least being aware of it, especially with the nails that do have a smaller radius of curvature where they are curved more, um, it makes it more difficult to change if you recognize a problem after it's locked uh, proximally, essentially. So you have to be kind of like I get anal retentive about checking back and forth, true lateral the knee, true lateral the neck once the proximals in and then make sure that if uh, you know somebody else doing the distal interlocks isn't rotating the leg the image is changing not the not the patient leg to avoid um, changing the rotation afterwards um, because there's always like the handle can rotate the femur out the if in the lateral like the knee can internally rotate just position wise so it's just like anything just being really super critical about each step, I think is important. Is everyone using two screws, two points of fixation proximally, one, doesn't matter. Can you get your thoughts on that? I'm not always using two. Uh, for the most part, I think I do, uh, but uh, occasionally I'll just use a greater to lesser screw. If it's if it's a you know transverse subtroke, there's no, uh, Comminution, nothing going up into the uh, into the neck or uh, trochanteric region. Any other thoughts? Yeah, more. I use more recon nails in younger patients because it's a smaller hole up top. I just don't like making a giant hole in the top of younger patients. But for the older patients, um, any cephalomedular nail with a single a single large screw into the head is probably fine. I think for the younger patients, a recon nail with two screws and We've all been there and there's times I can only get one screw in and um, they seem to do fine too. I, I, I think that all the things we talked about are more important than the number of screws up top. I think you got a good reduction. Don't put a lot of stress on your nail and your screws. I think you're probably fine, but um, two would be optimal. But And then distally, you could say the same thing. One or two screws and depends on your, depends on your philosophy. And I, I think that really, for me at least, depends on the morphology of the fracture and it's a, you know, it's a, a bone nail construct. And if it's a simple transverse or um, slightly oblique fracture, maybe they get one screw, if it's incredibly common, they get two, but um, 
just based on some old finite element stuff, but I, I can't tell you that that's right or wrong. What about, um, what about placement of screws proximally? So like, I almost always put at least one screw up into the neck. Um, but there's multiple options. Is anybody always using the recon option or never using the recon option unless there's, they find a femoral neck fracture on imaging or after the fact, like what, where's your proximal screw placement typically? On an older person, I will always put a, you know, use a hip fracture type nail because I, I, it seems to me now and again, you'll see a subtroke and it's a subtroke on CT. There's no neck component. And then they come back to the office and you can see a little thing there and a little fracture line at the base of the neck. And I think it's more comforting to have something up into the head. So, and then on a young person, I'll do a recon nail, but I'll still put the screws into the head. It's just the occasion that somebody comes back with a neck shaft that was unrecognized, negative CT, no blood in the capsule or anything. It, it, to me, if you're doing an anti-grade nail, I would, on a polytrauma patient, I would always put the screws into the head. I'm Not only that, is, as Alan, you mentioned, a lot of these patients are high risk of falls and, and further injuries in the future, the elderly. And um, you know, I treat them like my cancer patients, belts and braces. I'm always going to be spanning from the right from the top of the head with a kefir nail right down the, the whole length of the femur. Um, because just trying to avoid that that next injury, that next fracture, and then it's just making that's even going to be a harder operation if you've got a nail in and you haven't gone mm -hmm. through the neck already. So, yeah, I think uh, I I'm saying always a lot tonight, and I apologize, but I always do put a screw up into the head if it's if I can get two recon. I do if it's one recon because like I'm also quoting Bob a lot or acknowledging Bob a lot, so one screw at least up into the neck, head and neck and then you know the transverse one or you know if it's a different nail whatever if they can get two they get two but i think what uh andrew was saying i think is what i think about for younger patients too like if you don't put something across their neck so i i've gone to like you know corey colleges and everybody who was on that paper like doing recons for everybody for the reason that alan said like you have a if you have a missed neck um, but also because as people age, they're going to get stress risers and they're get some, going to get some um, relative osteoporosis of their neck. And so, you know, I won't know if I've pre prevented somebody from getting a femoral neck fracture because it might be 30 years from now. And I'm not going to be practicing 30 years from now, but um, it makes me feel better. So. Andrew, you mentioned, uh, Andrew Mills, you mentioned for subtrokes, you're going to treat closed, you put them on a fracture table, and then the ones you open, you're going to, you're going to put them lateral. Have you ever had a scenario where you put someone on a fracture table and you weren't real confident that it would reduce closed? Uh, have you made any changes based on that? I, I don't know that I've done that because I, I think like Dr. Schweizer said in the chat if it's one where i'm concerned about reduction i'll position them supine with the free leg first and i think that gives you a lot of uh a lot of freedom um you know to get a good reduction so i don't, I, I haven't had that scenario yet um uh you know i guess the one the one kind of scenario that we haven't talked about i guess yet other than mentioning a transverse fracture and it's something that i kind of think about a little bit is you know is there um what do you do or what does the panel think about like a a a transverse fracture and a bisphosphonate uh type of situation where it's an elderly person they have a subtroke that might be hard to reduce there's a biologic you know quote-unquote insult to um doing an open reduction but the flip side is you want it to be perfect uh because that's going to be one that's going to take you a long time to heal and that's something that I've run into. That that's a situation where I've done it lateral because I wanted it to be perfect. I, I'd be curious to know what the panel thinks about that. I do them the way I usually do them, but having said that, probably one of the as far as I remember, the last two or three years, the only broken nail from a subtrope was a bisphosphonate fracture. And typical story, she had some prodromal pain, went out to the mailbox and her leg gave out on her and 
Um, obviously, this has been a chronic thing. So um, I guess based on some work that Jolene and others have done, I do what I normally do, whatever it is. And then I, um, I've been sending them all for PTH um, post-op. Uh, they get an endocrinology consult. Um, does it make a difference? I don't know. Like Brad, I, I think I sleep better at night knowing that I did everything I possibly could. But um, yeah, I don't know that um, opening or not opening, I try not to open them because I believe there's a periosteal blood supply that I want to strip. But I mean, if you have to, to get it reduced, because they are going to take forever to heal. They're just going to take a really long time. I think you do have to pay really close attention. There's actually a grading system as far as for uh, atypical fractures, like how much varus the femur's in. And I've actually had to um, like in those particular fractures, like done an acute osteotomy to get them out of varus, because I know that the likelihood of the nail breaking is super high. So I, I think just making sure if you do have a, a typical, um, you know, try to get as much of the femur on one film as you can, just to avoid missing an overall varus look to the femur. Or if you notice it when you're in the OR, then, you know, switch gears because, um, they will take forever and stuff will break. Well, that was the NYU paper from Kenny Eagle that <clears throat> only non-unions and hardware failure they had was when they were fixed in Varus. And if they were fixed close to anatomic, they had they had no non-unions and no failures. So um, again, that, that's on us. I think some of that Varus is, sorry. No, sorry, Alan, I was gonna say, as, as I always mentioned, they're a different beast, aren't they? And, and they're the ones that, um, you know, I'll always be much more aggressive with a, actually a formal open reduction and I'll often put a lateral cortical plate on and, and plate them and get maximal compression laterally before nailing them. And even sometimes if the bone's looking abnormal, burring out some of that lateral cortex, again, it's a bit like Brett's talking about, but actually trying to actually do a little bit of a closing wedge osteotomy sort of thing, get maximal compression laterally um, and then putting the nail in because they've they're the ones that I've had the biggest problems with in terms of non-unions and nail breakages, like, like mentioned. Yeah. It's yeah, unhealthy think, bone. It's dead. It's dead bone essentially. That's not helping you. The endosteal bone is pretty thick there. And it's, I think that's a lot of the varices because it's difficult to ream and not having eccentric reaming because the bone's so hard. Yeah, I don't want to beat a dead horse. Do them lateral. <laughs> you do them lateral, you can put your guide pin right up against the lateral cortex and you can ream the crap out of it. When you do them supine, your guide pin always heads medial and you ream out the medial side. So you've actually set yourself up for failure. But you can actually, I mean, Brett can test it. You can put them lateral and put your starting guide pin and lay it right along the lateral cortex. I mean, you can do whatever you want with it. It's so easy. But um, I don't. I don't disagree with you, Alan. If you just let it go where it wants to go, yeah, it's going to be hard. You got to remount that lateral sclerotic bone. Just got to pay attention to it. You mentioned you mentioned over reaming. Do you over ream those proximally or right at the fracture site to kind of ream down that sclerotic bone? Um, I don't know that I do because most of my really big canals distally because they're older patients, but. Um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't have a good answer for you on that. Um, we're getting kind of a lot of questions on um, just when, I think, you know, for most of us, elderly patients would get like a true hip fracture nail, like a cephalomedullary nail and younger patients get recon nails. But <clears throat> um, we've had several people kind of ask, how do you make that distinction? Like what's your cutoff? Um, you know, why are you choosing a recon nail over a cephalomedullary nail if they accomplish the same thing? I know there's a, you know, there was a paper out at UT Southwestern a, a while ago that showed that they were both kind of the same in terms of reduction and healing and stuff. So, you know, why make that big distinction? I think reaming for a, a big screw on a young person is difficult. Uh, and Sometimes the bone is so hard, you can't advance the reamer. And sometimes despite reaming, you can't advance the screw um, and you'll need to tap it, which is the helical blade seems weird. Yeah. Smash that well, thing I, don't, your bone. I mean, I don't, I actually never use that implant, but it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's, um, 
the screws can be almost impossible to advance or they'll incarcerate. So, you know, if they're in their 20s or 30s, a recon nail completely obviates that as a problem. Um, but if they're, you know, if they're in their 50s or older, then I'd say use the hip fracture nail. You generally don't have the quite so dense bone. You're going to remount uh, my I stroke. Take, I'm 50. I take umbrage to the uh, I'm 50, <laughs> but it's just like the people who show like up to the 60, hospital tend to be 60. less healthy. Let's go so, 60. 60. Okay, 60. Does okay. that make you feel better? Yeah. I, I don't take out a large percentage of nails after subtrochs, but I do take out some. And so, especially in the younger patients, uh, just like Dr. Afsari said, I, I, I stay far away from the hip nails because uh, I don't want to leave a big stress riser in the neck and, and a big hole in the head when I take out that nail. So um, I, I rarely use a, a hip nail uh, in anybody under 60, I'd say may, maybe in, in even older people, I'll tend to use a recon nail unless the fracture is very proximal because I mean, there is a variability in how high or low that fracture is going to be and still be in the subtrochanteric region. So if it's a reverse obliquity, then I'm much more likely to use a hip nail if it's a, a high subtroke uh, than uh, for an older patient, a hip nail, but if not, even, even in an older patient, a recon nail, or like I said, in a young patient, uh, I, I do not always use a recon nail. I'll sometimes use uh, just a, a, a screw that a locking construct that doesn't go into the head. There's a MyOA app that you can download to make this a little easier and, uh, and get involved. There's also a case folio. Um, application where you can save some of your cases. It's a secure location uh, to kind of help keep you organized. And then um, the, the link to the recording for this um, journal club will be sent out in 24 hours and you can access it in these locations if you, uh, if you missed part of it or if you just want to go back and, and listen again. So I appreciate for everyone who participated. Thank you for your time and uh, have a good evening. Thank you.